0: Hey now, welcome to the Sportscasters Podcast. My name is Steve Bennett, season number 11, episode number 20. Great show for you today, Joe Piznansky, uh, who was on episode number 6 of this podcast way back in 2011, and he was really one of the first guests that brought real legitimacy to the show and that's not to take away anything from the guests that were before him like Richard Deitch and Jeff Passan and Greg Wasinski. but at the time Joe Poznansky was the sports writer of the year so from that point forward every time I went to anyone and said please do this show Joe Posnanski did it suddenly the perception was well I don't know what a podcast is, but if it's something that Joe Piznanski does, I could do it too. So having him on back then was huge. And this podcast is going to be put up on September 28th, 2021, which is the release date of his book, The Baseball 100. So Joe Piznanski is joining us today. Also, uh, Tim Neverett, one of the play-by-play broadcasters for the Los Angeles Dodgers is going to join us and talk about his book called COVID Curveball uh, and about the 2020 Dodgers. But actually, that's a really cool interview. He's just spent a lot of time talking about his career, different ballparks he's worked, different games he's called, uh, broadcasting with COVID, why aren't they in the stadiums. Actually had a really interesting exchange about why broadcast teams aren't traveling. And is it safety or is it money? I put him on the spot a little bit with that one, but I thought he handled it pretty well. So that's the show today. We're going to have Neverett and we're going to have uh, Puznanski on. Uh, We just put up an episode of the 24-inch podcast, myself and Dave Rollins, uh, where we talk about a match that Hulk Hogan had at the Spectrum back in 1984 against Big John Studd. So look for that as well. Uh, Two podcasts this week, and there'll be another Sportscasters podcast next week as well. I want to get to at least 26 shows for the year uh, so that the 10th anniversary year was truly when you shake it all down in every other week event, a biweekly podcast, which I want this to be ultimately is a biweekly podcast, 26, 27 episodes a year. Uh, That's my goal. Uh, so there will be another episode next week. I've already recorded an interview with Rob Mish uh, for that episode. And Rob's a great guy. He's writing about sports gambling now. Uh, the first time he was on this podcast, it was a book that he wrote uh, about the Bryce Harper, the, the pre-pro baseball career of Bryce Harper, a really cool book called The Last Natural. Um, but today, also, besides the guests, we're going to have one last thing. I want to talk about the first Pearl Jam concert in three years that I went to and some more thoughts on my time with my brother and uh, Dave Rollins as well in New Jersey and John D'Amato, a couple guys, a couple friends from the Internet that I got to meet in person and a thought on one friend who, who wasn't there but should have been. Uh, also, we'll update the book club. I sent out a bunch of emails uh, this week trying to shake down the next group, the next batch of books. I already have the Big East scheduled for the fall, which is a book about the Big East basketball in its heyday. Uh, But we need to add some more books, and I spent a lot of time sending out emails. And uh, to be honest, I haven't got much back yet, but we'll update that in the book club uh, space after the Puznanski interview. So that's the plan for today. Before we get to that, first things first. Wanted to talk about the start of the Saints season a little bit. Uh, we've seen the good and the bad of Jameis Winston. Um, but I'm really proud of the Saints team so far. Uh, they have, and look at nobody cares about your shit, right? Nobody in the league cares what you're going through because every team is going through something. But I'm proud of this team. You know, for the first time in 16 years, you don't have Drew Brees there. Okay, uh, they have to leave the state of New Orleans, to evacuate for a hurricane on the last week of August. And they didn't return home that whole time until after the New England game. The plane flew them home. First three games of the season, they're all on the road. Sure, the first game was a home game, but it's in Jacksonville, and there was way more Packers fans than Saints fans there. That's not a home game. So they start with three road games, and they have a ton of injuries after the first game. Still no Mike Thomas. Still no Traquan Smith. You know, Will Lutz, our kicker, is out. You get through the first game, they play awesome. Uh, They blow out the Packers. Nobody expected us to win that game, let alone 35-3 to or whatever the score is. Jameis throws five touchdown passes. You know, great game. We see how great the team can be. Good defense. Jameis doesn't make any mistakes. He's slinging the ball into the end zone. And then the second week, I think everything caught up with them. They had eight coaches who missed the week with COVID. You know, Marshawn Lattimore didn't play. CJ Gardner-Johnson didn't play. Marcus Davenport didn't play. You know, uh, Quan Alexander didn't play. These were guys who were huge contributors in week one. And I think everything caught up to them. And they just had a stinker of a game in Carolina. They didn't block. They didn't pass, they couldn't run, they couldn't do anything. Anything you can think of in football, they did poorly, week two. Then week three, you go to New England, a place they haven't won since I was a sophomore in high school back in 1995, and they played a great game. Uh, They played a really good game, especially on defense, and uh, Jameis, uh, again, didn't make any mistakes, and they followed the game plan. Now, this is an interesting thing with the Saints the last few years. Every time they win, I always hear about what they're not doing right like with in Breeze it was always every time we'd win oh great you're eight and one but you haven't thrown the ball more than 30 yards down the field yet this year you know yeah you're getting 400 yards of offense a game but you're not throwing the ball down the field Drew Breeze isn't throwing it 50 yards you know and i never i could never understand why that was so important and now this year it's oh well Jameis Winston's not throwing for enough yards, you know. Sure, he's got seven touchdown passes to two interceptions, and he's doing exactly what Sean Payton wants him to do, but it's not enough. And look, I know that in the NFL of 2021, 350 yards passing over three weeks, probably not going to be enough. All right, but there's a plan here in place. Sean Payton is bringing Jameis Winston along here. Okay. And also, there's no Michael Thomas and no Traquan Smith there. Those are the two guys they counted on to be the number one and the number two receiver. Marquez is a, a magnificent talent. Right. But he was an undrafted rookie a year ago. So they're bringing him along as fast as they can. Troutman and Johnson, the tight ends, essentially rookies, bringing them along as fast as they can. Handing the ball to Alvin Kamara. 18 of the first 25 plays, that's a winning strategy right now. And there will be a week where Jameis Winston throws the ball 50 times for 450 yards. There will be a week. It doesn't have to be now. And here's the good news. They're 2-1. They get to play their home opener in the Superdome after a week in their own beds against the Giants. All right, it's a game, quite frankly, they should win. Go out and win it. And then the first quarter of the season, and I know there's 17 games now, but I'm still going to break it down in quarters anyway. Four quarters, there's five games in the last quarter. All right, that's the way I'm going to approach it. And if they can get through the first quarter without Drew Brees, with eight coaches having COVID, without having any time at home until the last week, with Michael Thomas and Trey Kwan Smith not there, you know, with Quan Alexander and Marcus Davenport missing games, With no Will Lutz, guess what? I'm going to sign up for that, and I'm going to be really optimistic about what the future of this 2021-22 Saints could hold. That's my wrap on the Saints. Uh, Also around the league, some other thoughts, some other things I've noticed. I cannot believe that the Kansas City Chiefs are in last place out of four. I know it's only three weeks of the season. They could easily, easily be 0-3 right now. Easily. Could have easily lost that game to the Browns. Uh, The Browns just apparently weren't ready to win it. And that's why they didn't. But they're behind Denver and Oakland, who are both undefeated. Uh, And also they're behind the fourth team in that division, who for whatever reason is escaping me right now. I know everyone's probably screaming it into their radios. Um, Chargers. And the Chargers as well. Um, and look, at they could win the rest of the games this year, and I don't think anyone would be shocked. Uh, but a little bit of adversity for them that they haven't faced in the regular season in a couple years. Uh, the Bills lost week one, and Josh Allen didn't play great week one or week two, uh, but that seems to be sorted out. Uh, he played awesome, and the team looked awesome against the Washington football team <laughs> um, in uh, Rich Stadium last week. They'll be fine. They're going to win a lot of games this year. The Steelers don't look good. Had the great win against the Bills Uh, since then. mm, Nothing great there. So, looks like Dallas is the best team in the NFC East. Uh, I feel safe to say that. Uh, Looks like the Titans are going to win the South again in the AFC. Seems like they're the best team there. Houston and Jacksonville are terrible. Indy doesn't look great. Carson Wentz is injured and struggling already. What else has piqued my interest the first few weeks? Uh, What about the NFC? Tampa, you know, Tampa looks like they're going to be good again. The Rams look like the best team maybe in the league right now. Matthew Stafford certainly looks like he's found a home. Um, So I'm sure for him, a guy who's played a lot of years and not won a playoff game, and I think he's only played in one, a loss to the Saints in the Superdome, where they really never competed in the game. I think the Saints scored over 50 points. I know Calvin Johnson had 200 yards receiving, um, but uh, the Saints won that game pretty easily. That was the game before the loss uh, to San Francisco and San Francisco on the Epic, kind of back and forth in the last five minutes, ended with the Vernon Davis touchdown. Looks like he's in the spot where he should be uh, with McVeigh, And uh, they're looking pretty good. All right. Here's what we're going to do one more time. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with Joe Piznansky. Uh Then after that, we will have the book club update. And there's a lot to discuss there. Uh, then we're going to do an interview that I recorded yesterday with Tim Nevert. Uh, and then one last thing will be my trip to New Jersey and the first Pearl Jam show in three years and some thoughts on spending a week with my brother. All right, that's the plan. Let's do it. We'll be right back with Joe Piznanski. Our first guest today. Grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and is a graduate of the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Uh, He has worked for the Kansas City Star, he has worked for the Charlotte Observer, Sports Illustrated, USA Today, NBC Sports, The Athletic, and is the author of some great books, like one on the Big Red Machine and one on Houdini, and a new one that's out today called The Baseball 100. He is one of the great guests in the history of this show. Let's give it to him. A warm uh, sportscaster's welcome to Joe Piznanski. Welcome back, Mr. Piznanski. How are you doing today? I am doing great. It's great to be back. How are you? I'm doing really good. I, You know, it's a, it's the 10th anniversary of the show this year, this whole year, because right? nice. I I decided to celebrate for a year. And uh, I was looking back today, and you were on episode six of the show Wow. Uh, back in 2011, and honestly and um worth i mentioned it in the article too that was kind of the first big break for us like once we had you on going back to people and saying you were on was so huge for us because one you were sports writer of the year at, at the time you had won the sports writer of the year award that year and also just you know the, the back then there was still this kind of question of well what is a podcast and even people who didn't know right if I could tell them well Joe Kadansky yeah. was on it they're like well if Joe would do it what the hell you know <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, yeah I look it's, I'm thrilled that I was uh, I was able to help I'm thrilled for your success it's uh, 10 years is a, an amazing accomplishment for sure
0: I appreciate that and I'm holding the baseball 100 in my hand which is also interesting to me because I feel like your books. Have also been a huge part of the um of the show, especially the paternal book, just because we were so locked in with you back at that that time period and it was just so interesting going through the ups and downs with you of that book. I can I can see it across the way on my shelf too. You know, and uh um, yeah. and you know, we had like talked to you right before you were about to move into state college for a year. You know, we talked to you about why you weren't going to, and how things changed, and the book, and reading the book. It just we were just so much a part of that with you. Obviously, you don't even remember or realize that, but to us, it was one of those times, especially at the beginning, to me especially, where I just felt like on the journey with you in a way, you know. And there's a four yeah, or five books absolutely. like that. Yeah, there's four or five books like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, yeah.
1: That's right. Yeah. Just, I mean, it was, I mean, it's hard to believe it was 10 years ago already, but, right. uh, but yeah, I mean, 10 years and I've written, so I guess this is my third book since then or fourth book. I don't even, I can't even keep track of my own books. I think third book since then. Uh, so, uh, so we have filled the time, I think.
0: Yeah. So the secret of golf was after that and the Houdini book. And now this. Yeah. Yeah. The, yep. ba- the baseball 100. Uh, which I'll say right off the bat, my favorite thing about it and books like this is you can read a different essay at random anytime you want. You know, it just lends itself, you know, like sometimes I'll just think of a number. Oh, 38. And then I'll just read number 38. Yeah. You know, and and I just love that about it.
1: Yeah, somebody somebody, uh, told me, in oh, one of the media one of the interviews I've already given for the book uh, said, this is the best bathroom book that's ever been written. <laughs> I,
0: yeah, you know? I wasn't going to say <laughs> that part of it but yeah <laughs> it's before I go in the bathroom that I pick out the number <laughs> what <Which, laughs> <but, laughs>
1: whatever whatever it takes to to get people to buy the book but no, I mean that's that was part of the point was to try to give people a lot of different ways to read it. You certainly can read it from front to back. I, I hope that it if you do it that way, you'll find out and, and sort of get a sense of the history of baseball. That was my idea. Uh, but you're, you can read your favorite team's players. You can, you know, you know, have a favorite player yourself or a player you particularly don't like. You can just find them. You can choose a random number. I, I, I really do hope that there, there are a lot of different ways uh, for people to read this book because that was uh, certainly the way I wrote it.
0: Well, it sort of is born on The Athletic. In a way, now I remember back to see because I filed you all over. You've written for since we've been chatting, Sports Illustrated, sure. of the Earth, uh, NBC Sports, um, The Athletic. I am sure I am leaving one or two out, but and then your own personal blogs that you wrote. And I remember you used to just put up these. You wrote them sort of at a time, once at a time, sort of out of order. You know, like it'd be number forty-one, and there'd be this long essay on your blog right. about a player. And then when you went over to the athletic, you started to do it on the athletic. At what point did you say, okay, all these words, all this work, let's put it all together and make it a book?
1: Uh, it's, a, it's a, it's a really good question. Uh, you're right. You have followed me with this journey from the beginning. I, I really had this idea for the Baseball One Hundred. Uh, yeah a decade ago probably when I would sit there and do it on my blog and and uh, it kind of got out of control i just I, I was so in love with writing these essays and, and and trying to get at the the heart of some of these people that it just it just ate up my life and and i i stopped in the middle uh, which which uh, didn't make some readers happy and then uh <laughs> and then I started up again and stopped again and and uh, then I went to the athletic and Sort of the idea, I mean, I read all of this. I mean, the, the athletic is, the pieces in the athletic, as they said, it, it, they, they, nobody hid from this. All of those pieces I had written in some form already. So, I mean, I, I you know, and I obviously uh, enhanced them, changed them, moved them around. I mean, I did all of this work, and, um, you know, at some point I realized how long it was. I realized how, and I just thought, I, I'll you know, I'll tell you, I've said this to to a couple of people, but but not many. It was writing the Carlton Fisk essay that sort of gave me this sort of understanding of what I think of, that this thing could be. I, it's, I think, I don't even remember what number, I know he's in the 80s somewhere and and I had written a bunch of these essays and and I loved them. I mean, I loved doing it. It was very fun. I knew it was going to be extensive and long and, and I, you know, really, really was getting great feedback. It was really nice. But, the Carlton Fisk essay was, it's about his father. It's about the, the relationship between Carlton Fisk and his father. And as I was writing that, it was such a moving story to me. His story, not, not necessarily the way I wrote it, but his story was so moving and I started to write about fathers and sons and and, and what they mean. And, and it's like, you know, this is, this is more than just, for me, this is more than just counting down the greatest players ever. This is, this is really why I love baseball. This is every one of these players represents a reason for why I love baseball and why so many of us love baseball and why it's history is so great. And so, so for me, that was the idea. And, and once that became the idea, I really did think it was a book. I mean, that that's the way I wrote it, even, even in live. And of course I had to rework a lot after it was done in order to turn it actually into a book, um, which was a lot of fun and a lot of work, but, but, I did. That was the, you know, I had, I had been kicking around. I mentioned a few times through the years, you know, I don't do this as a book and, and I had a lot of people. I mean, I will tell you, I had a lot of people who basically told me to turn it into a book before I ever really even thought about it. And I got to say, um, one of those people, uh, actually wrote the introduction to this book and that's George Will. I actually received a bunch of emails from George Will. I don't know George Will. I mean, I know him now, but I didn't know George Will. I had never talked to him. I had never uh, exchanged an email with him or anything. And he just started writing these emails to me saying, you've got to turn this into a book. And, and it, you know, if you want my help, I'll help you. But you've got to make this into a book. And, and there were a few people that did that. He was the most prominent of those, but there were a few people that did that. And, uh, and here we are. Uh, the book is coming out in a couple of days. and I'm in Kansas City to to launch my book tour, and uh, and life is good.
0: And Carlton Fisk is number 80, uh, one behind Derek Jeter and one ahead of Ferguson Jenkins.
1: There you go. There That's you go. a pretty good group right there. <laughs> yeah.
0: Derek Jeter just went in the Hall of Fame, right? Just the most recent Hall of Famer. Sure did. Um, yep. I always thought it could be a book, too. I had that thought. I'm being honest about that. Uh, had that thought and you know one thing i kind of like about the book is that the countdown itself seems somewhat secondary to me you know like yeah i lose track of the track of the fact and maybe it's because at times i've read it out of order at times i've read it in order but i kind of lose track of the idea that okay we're building towards willie mays at number one here you know I, there's right. a similar book a friend of yours step wall and um uh, who was stepping Wall with on TV? The book was it? Was it fine? Oh, Matt. Matt. Okay, yeah. So but it was Matt? Yeah. Yeah, you're right about that. So they they kind of did a similar book where with TV, um, where it's a countdown it of, of yeah. I can see it across the Absolutely way. Absolutely great book. In that one, for whatever reason, I'm more into the competitiveness and the rankings of it. Where maybe because it's a hundred baseball players out of however many we've ever had, and every baseball player in the book is so great. Um, it's almost like just being in the book and being in the club is more the accomplishment than being number one or number two. At least for me as a reader, I was more interested in, oh, sweet, like my favorite player in the book is Greg Maddox. Like, oh, Greg Maddox is in the book. I was never all that concerned with where he was in the book for whatever reason.
1: I'm, I'm really glad you feel that way. I Honestly, because that's how I feel. I, I mean, I you know, obviously – i I am going on plenty of talk radio shows and arguing about the rankings because that's fun, and that's baseball and and you can't do a ranking book without uh, expecting that. but right. but that's exactly how I feel I and, you know and I did some things, as I'm sure you noticed uh, in the book to sort of show that because there are players who are ranked uh, not so much by how great they were, but they're sort of connected to a number. There are quite a few players, a bunch of players in there. Who who have a very special number in their career, whether it's their uniform number or a number of an accomplishment that they had or something like that, and that's the ranking. So so you know, and, I mean, Tom Seaver's number forty-one in this book, and and that's you know that was Tom Seaver's number and and yep. a larger-than-life number. You know, not just not just a number that people didn't remember or think about, but but a number that that really represented him. To me, he had to be number forty-one in the book. So. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's exactly what I thought. I mean, look, that's, it's so funny because of the way I did it. Uh, you know, at first was, you know, uh, an essay every day, as you all well know, in The Athletic. That was sort of the first version of this. Yep. And because of that, when people see Ishiro at number 100 or see Tony Gwynn at number 95, their first instinct is to be insulted. Because they're like, how could there be 94 better players than Tony Gwynn, and they don't they don't have any contacts because there's no you know it's gonna it's gonna be three months before we're gonna get to number one, and and so they're furious you know and they're like oh this is ridiculous <laughs> right. you know and they get really mad <laughs> and 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 that's and you're just like I get it of course I get it so I, Tony Gwynn is was a joy one of my favorite people and players in the history of the game in my view, um, but. Being one of the 100 greatest players is pretty good. You know? Yeah. I mean, I mean that's, that's what's so. So, I, so I'm really glad you see it that way because that's exactly how I see it.
0: Yeah. And the other thing I like about it, too, is like this is the, the book itself is a little bit of a Hall of Fame in a way, you know, in the sense that you're presenting the top 100 in the same way that if you went to the Hall of Fame, there's a top 100. And obviously, they're both governed right. by different rules and all that. But I also appreciated the fact that, you know, people like Kurt Schilling and uh, Barry Bonds and. Roger Clemens and other people who have been shunned by the one for whatever the reasons of the voters are present here that, that, you know, their place in baseball history, what, what may it be flawed um, is still present and maybe talked about in the pages of their particular essay. But I don't know, like it would be such a weird book if Barry Bonds wasn't there. You know what I mean? Right. right. Uh, so I, well,
1: and, and, and it, yeah, no, it was never going to happen for yeah. this kind of book. I mean, you know, I, my, my, feeling about the hall of fame. And this is, you know, I've, I've written about this many times. I'm sure you've seen that. I've talked about it. You know, my feeling is that the greatest players should be in the baseball hall of fame and that there should be some context to their careers. I mean, you know, Pete Rose should be in the hall of fame and, and somewhere on his plaque, it should talk about him being banned forever because of, because of gambling and, and, and so on and so on and so on. Uh, the hall of fame doesn't do it that way. And, uh, you know, I get it. And in some ways, you know, the idea of the hall of fame is a privilege. You can't, you you can't really put context, uh, on these things. These guys don't deserve to be in it, et cetera. Well, this was my hall of fame in that way. I can, I can put Barry Bonds where I put him, but the whole article is about context. The whole article is telling you about the good and the bad of Barry Bonds. And same thing with Pete Rose and, same thing with Ty Cobb and same thing with Roger Clemens and same thing with Curt Schilling. It's that was my idea is really to just be able to turn this in as a, as a hall of fame that, you know, you, you say, well, this person, how could you rank this person as high? Well, cause that person was a great player, but now here you go. You can read about that person and, and, and hopefully uh, get to understand them a little bit and know them a little bit and understand what their impact on the game was. And that was, that's what I was hoping to
0: do. Yeah, and I, I just really appreciate that about it. Oh, and I forgot to mention too, we were talking about the numbers. I really appreciated, like I said, Maddox, my favorite player in the book. And I really appreciated him being number thirty-one because he was number thirty-one. And when That's I right? was when I was a freshman in high school, I made the varsity hockey team. I was like one of the first freshmen to make the team in my school's history, and but I was also the last person to pick my number, so all my traditional hockey numbers were were exhausted. So I went with. Uh, Maddox is thirty-one, so it's a special number. Yeah, and I like how he is number thirty-one. He's just so damn good. But um,
1: yeah, I I, for for Maddox is another great example. I mean, obviously, I idolize Maddox. So many of us idolize Maddox. If you were a kid who idolized Maddox, you wanted number
0: thirty-one on your little
1: league team, right? I mean, that's that's why to me ranking him number twenty-seven or thirty-four or twenty-one or or thirty-nine. Yeah, I could do. I could have done it. I mean, look, I had an actual list that broke these things down statistically. I had an order and I could have gone exactly by that order. But to me, it's a much greater honor for me to give Greg Maddox his number that that that's how I looked at it.
0: You said that you've been getting in some 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 discussions with people around the country about the rankings. What what where's the beef been so far?
1: Oh, they're a bunch of beefs. <laughs> <There are a,
0: laughs>
1: Koufax is, is too low. A rod is too high. Uh, uh, how could you put? How could you pick Mays over Ruth? Uh, uh, Ishiro's too low. Uh, uh, Win is too low. um uh, eleventh too high. That, that, I've heard a bunch. They're missing the and, point, and of
0: course, yeah, they're missing the point. Well, right
1: now, I think. I, but I. But, but I will say in their, in their behalf, it was all fun. Right. It was all fun. Nobody yeah,
0: yeah, fun. yeah, yeah.
1: Nobody was – yeah, everybody's like, hey, let's argue about this. That's <laughs> so great about right. it. I hope. It's like, let's argue. It's really fun to argue about uh, about this kind of thing.
0: And that's so baseball too. You know what I mean to do that? Right, uh, right. Do you feel like Maze is number one over Ruth? Is its it is – it, is it a little bit like, hey, I rank ninety nine, but I'm gonna. This is my guy here, so I'm gonna get him at one. I felt like a lot of time uh, in that reading that essay. I felt like it was a little bit personal to you in a way that you just well, really wanted that. Guy. It is, yeah,
1: and that's it okay. Is. He's it worthy, I, I, you know.
0: He's worthy for sure. Well, I,
1: lo- I love, yeah, yeah I love Willie Mace. but I, but I, you know, I love the story of Babe Ruth. I love. I mean, obviously, I didn't see Babe Ruth, but I didn't see Willie Mays play. Right. Uh, but, but I love. Uh, I just when it came to number one. Look, there's no wrong answer and there's no right answer, but when I came to number one, <clears throat> I wanted the player who, to me, most represents the game, most represents everything about the game that I think we all love. And that's not to say Ruth didn't, but when you're talking about speed and you're talking about defense and you're talking about arm and you're talking about uh, you know hitting and power and 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 stealing bases and doing everything that a person can do. That's Willie Mays. That's Willie Mays. And he did it with this profound level of joy. And, you know, look, the, the people who make the Ruth argument make the right argument. He was a great pitcher and a great hitter, and nobody else has, has been that, except right. for Shohei Otani, who's only done it this year. But nobody else has done that. And there's that, that's it's true. And there's never been a, a hitter who dominated the game the way that Babe Ruth did in 1921 and 20 and, and all that. All those things are true. Um but to me, all things considered, including the time when they played and the joy they brought to the game and, and the well-roundedness of their games, um, Willie Mays was number one.
0: Fair enough. This is kind of a fun thing, I think. Let's say 10 years from now, a publisher comes to you and says, you know what, let's, let's, uh, let's update this. Uh, take, yeah. take a few guys out and put a few guys in that have that's career has played out since we published this in 2021. Who are some of the names sure. you think uh, end up in in the ten year from now version of the book?
1: Great question. There are a few that that just missed this book this this uh, list. Who I think very well could be there. I mean, I there's a version of this hundred that has Zach Grenke in it, and I think at the end of the day, Zach Grenke will be one of the hundred greatest players
0: ever. Certainly, one hundred uh, the greatest character. I, I mean, he's a character in himself. Right? And,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yeah. you know, and, and that'll be a fun that'll be a fun essay to write. I bet. Uh, I I think Joey Votto uh, very well could be one of the 100 greatest players ever. That uh, Joey Votto himself has told me he is one okay. of the 100 greatest players ever. All right. so, I like that. So, so <laughs> I'm going to go with that. Um, you know, there are a few guys who you, you can look at the catchers and 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 see yadi Molina and and uh, and uh, Buster Posey. Posey you yeah. know, maybe yeah. certainly you could certainly make an argument, particularly for Posey, maybe. Um, I think there's – that, but I'll tell you who's the guy who's going to be there. Obviously, Trout will be higher, and right. and, and some other things will happen. But I'll tell you who's the guy. I think the guy's going to be there in 10 years, and that's Juan Soto. That, okay. I mean, I look, I think it could be several of these young guys. I mean, Vladdy Guerrero could be there, and uh, Fernando Henchis Jr. could be yeah, there. Acuna. Acuna could be there if he can stay healthy for sure. All of those guys uh, have a real chance. You know, Freddie Freeman could be there. I mean, yeah. I mean if he – continues to do this every year for the next, you know, seven, eight years, you know, then, then what a career. I mean, it's already been a great career, but, but I think the guy who is most likely to me to be like super high on this list, it's Juan Soto. I'm just blown away. Just absolutely blown away by his ability, his talent, his hitting. I mean, this, the last two months he's been... I was going to say,
0: what a month he's having. <laughs> everyone left him. Yeah, oh my God, but... Everyone left him alone, and look at what he's done since that happened. You know, since they traded him. Yeah, I mean, yeah.
1: I know. Yeah. I know. I mean, you know, with nobody else in the lineup. Yeah, I trade. mean, he is having a, bear, a Barry Bonds at his peak month in September. I mean, he's yep. hitting four eighty and slugging eight sixty or something. I mean, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. And he's 22 years old. So, uh, I mean... You, you, you hear the sky is the limit on a lot of people, and that's not necessarily true for most of them, but there is no limit that I can see for Juan Soto. So I'm very excited about watching him for the next few years.
0: Yeah, he's a really scary player. I remember when the trade deadline happened, there was a meme going around that picture of Will Smith at the end of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, where he's like just in the living yeah. room and everything else is gone. And they're saying, you know, that's right. Soto. And since then, I mean, he's just been the best player in the National League, right? I mean... So oh, hats absolutely. Off, hats off absolutely. to him. Yeah, hats off to him for an unbelievable run. Uh, Joe is with us. Like I said, it was episode six where he debuted way, 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 way back. And that must have been February, uh, March at the latest of 2011. His book today that we're talking about is The Baseball 100, and it goes on sale on uh, September 28th, uh, which is Tuesday, I assume. Uh, That's right. Yeah, Tuesday um so by the time probably by the time you hear this it's either a day or two from being out or it's out um and it's uh it's fantastic it's the 100 uh players that started at the athletic and by the way joe you must have been uh a, a little bit of calling some copyright infringement that those guys they took it to football huh those athletic guys they're like we're gonna we need something to do the rest of the off season. let's do this for football yeah yeah they uh they enjoyed the idea (laughs) i'll I'll, I'll leave it at that yeah they certainly (laughs) did enjoy the idea they took it right to football the baseball 100 uh by joe poznanski is the book and joe i know you're just settled into the hotel room i could do uh 30 minutes more but i want to do that to you so i'm gonna let you go um before i do though anything else you want to plug anything else you want to mention it's jay poznanski on twitter um easy to find there one of the best nicest assistants in the world too the average listener won't be able oh. to experience Jennifer, but I-, I wanted to mention at least on air, at least one time in the history of you coming on, nobody's treated me nicer and kinder. No one have I bugged probably more uh, over the history of this show. And she's just does incredible work for you. Uh, what Anything else please. you want to mention? Oh, go ahead. Yeah.
1: No, well, yes. I mean, please yeah. give Jennifer all of her, all of her props. She's yeah. the greatest. She rules. Absolutely. The greatest. Yeah. Uh, she's, she's so awesome. Um, the only thing I would add is that, that I do, have, you know, I am writing now. I'm not writing at The Athletic anymore. I am writing at my own uh, substack, joepoznanski.com. Of course, if people want to go there, I would love it if they did. And uh, lots of free stuff there. There is going to be, there is a subscription uh, if you if you want everything. And uh, uh, that's about it. There you go.
0: If there's one thing we've learned. You can't pin Joe Piznanski down for long. I don't, do, <laughs> do, you, do you know this song, Off He Goes by Pearl Jam? I feel like that's yes. your, that's your song, and there he goes. Ah, <laughs> you know, that's, that's there you your, go. <laughs> that's
1: I, wish, I wish it, I wish it didn't have to be that way. <laughs>
0: but, all right, thank you so much, <laughs> Joe. I appreciate you very, very much.
1: Absolutely, thanks for having me.
2: So could have use a few pounds Tight pants, points, hollering down. She was a black hat beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high Way up firm and high I
0: past the cornfields when the winds got heaven. I want to thank Joe Piznanski for being on the podcast today. All right, quick book club update because that interview means we're done with the Baseball 100. And in a second, we're going to interview Tim Neverett, which means we're going to be done with his book, COVID Curveball, which as far as I'm concerned, means we've kind of cleared the deck on the books that we started the fall with. So it's time for some new ones. And I'm putting the work in. Uh, I reached out to the publisher of these books. Um, no One Wins Alone by Mark Messier. I reached out to them. Uh, woke Up This Morning, Mike Imperioli and Steve Strippo reached out there. Uh, Tinderbox by James Andrew Miller. That comes out in November. I reached out there. Uh, Eruption" by Brad Tolinsky and Chris Gill, which is an Eddie Van Halen book that comes out on October 5th. I reached out there. So I haven't heard back from any of those... Yet, but I'm going to keep trying. And like I mentioned earlier, we do have The Big East uh, by Dana O'Neill, which comes out November 9th. And I'm really looking forward to that one. I love uh, The Big East basketball. I love that period. Uh, and there's some really good books coming out in 2022 I'm looking forward to. Uh, Coach K by Ian O'Connor. Uh, Ricky Henderson book by Howard Bryant. Uh, Mike Florio has a book coming out called Playmakers. Never had Florio on. Could be a good chance to do that. And Jeff Perlman's working on a Bo Jackson book. So if Jeff Perlman still comes on this podcast, uh, we'll have him for that. But I'm going to still work, and if there's any books out there that you know of uh, that you think would be a good fit for the book club, email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com, or hit me up on Twitter and let me know what you think would be a good fit for the book club. All right, with that said, let's take a break and we will be right back with Tim Neverett. Our next guest today is from Nashua, New Hampshire. He attended Emerson College and has called baseball games for the Pittsburgh Pirates, Boston Red Sox, and currently the Los Angeles Dodgers. And he has a book out documenting the Dodgers World Series win called COVID Curveball. He's making his debut on the Sportscasters today. A warm welcome to Tim Neverett. Hey, Tim, how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing very, very well. Thanks for having me
0: on. Yeah, I appreciate you doing it. Um again the book uh is about last year's um World Series run uh through COVID and uh Dodgers on another run this year. Um I thought I thought it was interesting. I you maybe you think this is interesting too. The Giants won uh their what, one hundred and second game yesterday? So you figure they're gonna get right. a, they're gonna get at least one more, you figure, right? So Let's say they finish with 103 or more. It'll be the most or second most wins they've ever had in San Francisco. The other time they got this many wins, they didn't win the division versus the Braves in 93. So if the Dodgers were to catch them, their two best seasons in San Francisco could be non-division winning seasons.
2: (laughs) Well, well, we're hopeful in L.A., but the the way it's going to work is the Dodgers pretty much have to win out. And the Giants have to find a way to lose three of their next six, and they've got the Diamondbacks and Padres, both teams, out of it. So, uh, you know, the odds are against the Dodgers right now. They're still mathematically possible, but you're right. I mean, uh, even if no matter what, you're going to have a team that's going to have 103, 104 wins in a wild-card game, which is crazy to think.
0: And because they don't recede, then you're going to have – if the Dodgers or and or Giants win the wild card game, they'll have to face each other, while the Braves and Brewers yeah. will play each other. So that's really something exactly. MLB needs to work on because it's going to be in both leagues. It's going to happen this year.
2: It is, and yeah. you know, I guarantee you they'll be talking about this while they work on the collective bargaining agreement. I know Major League Baseball wants to expand the playoffs, but um, I, I do think that it needs to be a little more equitable in terms of. You know, if you have two teams with 104, 105 wins, um, then, you know, why is one team subject to a one-game playoff where anything can happen after right. a season like that? Yeah. I, I, I just – I I think there's going to have to be some kind of maneuvering with the postseason uh, going forward.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. What would you say is the biggest difference between the 2021 and 2020 Dodgers? If there is was uh-huh. one.
2: As a as a team, I think that you know you'd say the pitching, but the pitching was really good last year too. <laughs> so, yep. uh, but I, you know you have two players like Trey Turner and Max Muncie, uh, and I've never seen a trade where you might get a Cy Young winner and a batting title you know winner yeah, in sure, the same trade. I yeah. just I've never yeah. seen anything like that. But that's been I think the biggest difference is getting Scherzer and then Trey Turner and what he's able to do offensively uh, has been remarkable for this
0: team. Yeah, we mentioned the Giants, and it's wild that they—they it looks like they're going to actually hold the Dodgers off because it feels like all of baseball was just kind of waiting for the day this season that the Giants would, the Dodgers would creep ahead of them and then kind of pull away, and it just never happened. Do you think that the Giants are the biggest challenge for the Dodgers in the National League um, in terms of getting to the World getting back to the World Series? Or do you think, for whatever reason, matchup-wise, the Braves or the Brewers or even the Phillies could be more challenging for them going forward?
2: Well, right now, it's got to be the Giants. The Giants won the season series. The Giants have more wins than the Dodgers. Uh, they've never played each other in the postseason, if you can believe it, in the history of
0: yeah, the two wild. franchises. That's wild.
2: Going back to New York, yeah. when they shared a town, they still never played against each other. So uh, that's the weirdest thing, but... Um, more than likely destined to play each other one way or another in the division series this year. That's going to be, you know, must-see TV, I guess. But, um, yeah, I think if if they get past the Giants, uh, you know, Milwaukee then would pose the next biggest threat because of their pitching. But I, I think after that, I think the Dodgers are a better team than the teams in the East.
0: Now, the Braves did push them to the limit last year, but that was with Acuna um, and uh... – you know, some other things that have went wrong for the Braves this year. I mean, the Braves have really had one of those everything that could go wrong will go wrong years and that amplifies why when you have a team like the Dodgers 3 to 1, you got to find a way to close that out cuz you just never know when you I mean when you're going to get that close. You know, getting one game away from a World Series is really hard to do in baseball.
2: It really is. And when you have a team down 3 to 1, you got to you got to end it. You yeah, got to find a way, and they you did. You know the Dodgers came back. The Dodgers fought. The Dodgers they outpitched them. They outhit them. They outplayed them, and and they earned it. So it was really one of those things where you said, "Wow, what a great regular season for a short regular season." And then you know they they swept the Brewers in the wild card. They swept the Padres in the division series, and then they get to the National League Championship Series. They're down three to one in, a, in an unfamiliar position, but then they just stepped on the gas and blew right past the Braves and got themselves back to the World Series.
0: Yeah, and the Braves made some mistakes, too, especially running running the bases. Uh, you know, just did some stuff kind of showing their inexperience in that in the face of trying to win that fourth game, where the Dodgers certainly battle-tested. You know what I mean? At that point, uh, having been really through it all in the playoffs in the last decade. Um, and, yeah. and that kind of showed maybe in the last three games there. But, you know, the Braves just it'll be interesting to see when they can get to that point again. Uh, just a missed opportunity for them, for sure.
2: Yeah, it certainly was a missed opportunity because, you know, you're one win away from going to the World Series, and who knows if you win it or not. The Rays are good, too, but you're one win away. And forever, that team, those players on that team, like some of those guys never get that close again. They'll look back on that series, and it's going to, you know, it'll bother them. It'll bother them personally when they're finished playing. I mean, players have, you know, long memories. And that's something that those guys will never forget. You don't know if the Braves are going to get that close again, uh, at least this group of them. Maybe they will. They've got some really good players. But, uh, again, when you get that close and you can't close the door, that says something about not only your club, but it says something about the team that came all the way back to beat you.
0: Yeah, I mean, the Braves have had some postseason nightmares against the Dodgers in the last handful of years. I mean, I think Craig Kimbrough, is still waiting in the uh, Visitors' bullpen with the hands on his hips and the ball in his glove uh, to come into that game uh, against the Dodgers a few years ago before the home run uh, when he wasn't brought in, uh, which is something I know Braves fans, it still sort of haunts them. uh, The thought of Kimbrel just standing there and waiting and saying, bring me into this game, please. I think it was Jose Uribe maybe that hit the home run, um, if I have that remember correctly. But we kind of jumped ahead uh, in the story, but let's go back. Uh, so 2020 obviously starts, um, you know, the the the, the book is sprit, s- split into the three parts, the preseason, um, the, the post, the season itself, and then the postseason. And the preseason is such an interesting story because we didn't really know for sure if we'd even have baseball, you know, or not last year. And then when baseball started, I remember, and I don't know if you remember this as well that first week or two was really, really, it felt like if there was maybe one or two more outbreaks, they might have backed out completely. At least it felt that way. It felt like the season was teetering. Uh, What do you remember most kind of about the thoughts before the season? Would we have it? Would we not? And then that that first couple weeks and the kind of grinding, I think it was the Nationals or the Cardinals or maybe the teams that really had the the early problems.
2: Yeah, I I think that the prevailing attitude was that we hope we play the season. (laughs) And at that point we didn't know, you know, even though they, we had plans to reconvene for summer camp, which was the second version of spring training, but we still didn't know, you know, there was an intake process for players and staff and whatnot. And, you know, you had to get into the testing protocols and all these things. And still you didn't know. And then when the outbreaks began with the Marlins, and it got bad, and then it went to the Cardinals and got really bad. That, I think, was a time when people were less confident that we even finished the season. and Who knows how close we were to seeing Major League Baseball pull the plug. My guess is that they certainly didn't want to. They wanted to protect the business interests of not only the the teams, but the league itself, especially with all that TV money that was going to be coming to them for the postseason. So they did what they had to do to keep everybody as healthy as possible. But there were certainly times where many people around a lot of ball clubs doubted whether or not we'd be able to continue uh, or whether, you know, whether they have to shut it down and we just pick it up again in 2021. But I'm glad they didn't. I'm glad that we were able to fight through it. I'm glad the team stayed healthy like the Dodgers. Uh, And, you know, the Dodgers stayed healthy up until game six of the World Series. And then after that, uh, after the World Series was over, then they had a bunch of cases. So, oh, right, with uh, Trey that's, Turner, you know,
0: or with uh, Justin Turner and in that, right? yeah. But yeah. Justin,
2: he was he was asymptomatic. You know, his sure. test came back positive, but he he was more surprised than anybody because he didn't feel like he had any symptoms at all. And you know, he still doesn't know you know where he got it and whether it was a false positive or not. He's he's still not one hundred percent sure. But um, that's what happened in Game Six. And you know, the most twenty twenty thing. I, I'm pretty sure I wrote this in the book too. Most 2020 thing about the 2020 season was the fact that a guy with a positive COVID test stayed in the game longer than a pitcher in Blake Snell who was dominating the Dodgers and was left was lifted from the game due to analytics.
0: Yeah, ridiculous. Yeah.
2: I mean, and then six pitches after Snell's out, the Dodgers have the lead in the World Series in hand. Six pitches (laughs) later.
0: wild i will get there in a second i, w- I did want to ask you i've been excited i talked to you about this broadcasting these games remotely um how did you adjust to it i mean this season it seems like it's become more of an issue than it was last season i think last season everyone was more willing to just take what we could get you know now this season i feel like with vaccines and with um, uh, the country opening up more there seems to be more frustration i know we had the 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 incident with John Sterling who called the home run off the highlight and they kind of expressed, their frustration, you know, how he had just looked away. He looks back, it looks the same. How does he know, you know, this kind of thing. But what about calling these games remotely and and kind of your progression within it? I should probably have researched and known this, but are you still calling road games remotely at this point with the Dodgers? I know every team is different.
2: Yes, we are. The Dodgers are not traveling the, the announcers at all. And, uh,
0: and that's the plan for finished, playoffs uh, as well, or
2: yes, yeah. yeah we'll not travel in the postseason at all this year. Um, in fact, we just finished doing our last remote broadcast. I did the telecast on Sunday afternoon with the Arizona Diamondbacks, and after the game, I was like, "Yes, the next six games I got there in front of me." Right? You know, there's actual baseball to be seen in front of me. I'm tired. You know, it's it's not an easy way to do it. I mean, playing a game in Arizona the other day. I didn't know till the fourth inning that the roof was open. Sure. Throughout the game, it's yeah. kind of a big deal because the ball carries differently. It's part of the story. Right. But I couldn't tell because of the camera shots I had until I got a shot somewhere in the fourth inning, and I noticed that one of the back panels was, was open now, where during the early part of the day, I noticed it was all closed up. But at some point, when I looked away, they opened the roof, and they opened the back panels, and they were playing the game that way. If I was there, I would have known that. But because I wasn't there, I didn't know. They'd been playing every game indoors until it was, this was the Saturday game of a three-game series. And that's just one example. I mean, I'm doing a radio series uh, with, with the Marlins. They're in Miami. We're at Dodger Stadium. Five times during the game, we lost our video feed. How oh, are we supposed goodness. to call it off a blank screen, right? So, And then, these are little things. Uh, with what John Sterling did, I did the same thing on a, a recent road trip. Not I didn't call a home run, but I called something that was on tape, right, that was being put to air. They were showing somebody on deck. And I looked away at one of the other monitors to try to look at something in the bullpen. I looked back, and I see somebody swinging a bat on deck. So I'm like, so-and-so's on deck. And the producer gets in my ear. He goes, that's on tape, just so you know.
0: Oh, my God. So
2: it wasn't even live. And I'm calling. How was I to know?
0: Right. Now, you know
2: and the, and the viewer didn't didn't notice the difference but we all did who involved in the production are we like we can't be calling things that already happened
0: what are you so being it's, told it's
2: very challenging
0: what are you being told like why can the stadium be full the other teams' announcers can be there but but the visiting team announcers what would tip the scale? I mean I don't understand like what are you being told do you believe this is about safety do you believe this is about about money, I know that um, Andrew Marchand from the New York Post in his uh, newsletter plus article today had a little bit about this. That the belief across this across the league tends to be that this is about saving money, not about safety. What are your thoughts? And I hope I'm not putting you in a position I, here. I understand. Uh, say, well, say what you can I, or can't. It,
2: it, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's about both. I know in our situation we have some older announcers that have. Um, you know, they, they might have some underlying health situations and they don't want to risk being exposed. And quite honestly, our youngest announcer uh, just contracted COVID and has and is in quarantine right now as we speak. So um, it, it, it's, a, it's a safety issue. And, you know, I don't have any playoff assignments, but uh, the last several years they send me home in the postseason because I don't have anything, you know, I don't have any assignments for the playoffs. Because our crew shrinks so much due to national TV. So the the Dodgers want me to stay this year in case somebody gets sick. So I'm literally going to stay around L.A., and if someone gets sick, then I get called in. So I'm there as an insurance policy. So, I mean, it's more of a safety issue, I think, with the Dodgers situation. But you are calling games
0: at home, right?
2: Yes. Yes. So I guess I don't understand. 50,000 people in the stadium. I guess I don't understand the difference. Yeah, I you know somebody might have to explain that to me too, but okay. I, that's all I know. All right, fair enough. It's, it's, yeah, you know I'm just glad I don't think about it because I'm glad that I'm there at a full stadium and I can see the game in front of me and watch the game the way that I would normally watch it, so I don't miss half of what I would normally look
0: for. Right. Well, I, I thank you for your for your honesty there. I hope I didn't put you in a spot you didn't want to be in. But uh, look, I hope I hope it continues to improve for everyone. Um. Let's go back to last season. I know personally, as a neutral observer, it's been a while since I felt as good about someone getting a ring as I did about Clayton Clayton Kershaw uh, finally getting one for the Dodgers and having a big moment in that World Series too, and sort of erasing some of the unfair, in my opinion, criticisms that have followed him around the last few years. What about Kershaw and finally getting that ring?
2: Yeah, I think everybody was happy for him. I think everybody's thoughts went to him first because of the unfair criticism. When you pitch in the postseason, everything's magnified 10, 20, 100-fold. So in the regular season, if you give up a home run or you give up a hit here or a hit there, it happens. And people just say, hey, this is okay. It happens. You're going to lose a game here and there. When it happens in the postseason, oh, my God, you're a choker, you're this, you're that. They're going to call you all kinds of names because it's so magnified. But for Clayton, I was so excited for him, and I think everybody was, that he finally got the victory. And, you know, there's so many people, too, that want to say, oh, I was, it's a short season, it was a Mickey Mouse season. No, no, not at all. I mean, for those of us who went through it, it was harder yeah. to go through that season yeah. last year than it, than it has been any 162-game season I've ever been through.
0: Yeah every game like of the three. Way, every game's like 3 last yeah, every, year. yeah
2: exactly Yeah. exactly so every game was like 3 the way you had to live your life cuz keep in mind you know i think people think professional athletes and people who are around them were just like robots right we just show up at night on their tv or radio <laughs> sure. and, yeah. and, and and you know we don't we don't have a life outside of that right but no the way that you had to live was really restricted so you know like for me it was where i was living the ballpark, the grocery store, the pharmacy—that was it. Those are the only four places I was allowed to go. And the players, the same thing—we're really restricted in what we could do in our movements. So, in um, the in the constant testing and the uh, the adherence to protocols, it was just very very difficult—a um, uh, big time adjustment for everybody and adjusting to a lot of things. So it was a hard couple of months.
0: Yeah, it was harder a than any
2: couple of months that I've ever had in baseball. So, people want to put an asterisk on it. Uh, I think they're wrong, and I think that um, you know they they don't understand from the perspective that we had. And in the book, I'm trying to give people some of that perspective. You know, giving them some stories, telling them how different it was, how odd it was, how how uh, strange it was, and why that season was special, and why that season was crazy and different from any other we've ever had.
0: Yeah, and the book is kind of written like a journal almost where you go through the – it's almost written by, you know, like in front of me just happened to have July 30th, 2020. Game 7 is up. You know, you you already have three COVID tests at this point. And what did the season start? Maybe two weeks before this or a month before this, whatever. You know, um, and and you give an insight into how the testing went, what you had to go through. So you really get a nice behind-the-scenes – kind of look at the mechanics of what everyone needed to do to pull the season off. You know, that's why I say it, it feels like every game was three because it was just such a grind from the beginning of the day to the end of the day and athletes and people involved in athletics are so routine based and it was so difficult to 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 use the routine you've used your whole life because there's this whole other element kind of there for you. You know, did you have trouble with your routine and kind of getting Comfortable did it take you a while to feel normal last year,
2: yeah, and I don't think you ever felt normal, yeah, you know because yeah, normal the, probably the, the constant- wrong word,
0: yeah normal is the wrong word, yeah yeah. Yeah. But,
2: yeah, but like you you have this constant feeling every day you woke up, you're like wondering, all right, who's got it today right <laughs> and and you you follow the news and you follow what's going on, and it's constantly hanging over everybody's head, you know, businesses are shut down, restaurants are shut down um. It was just a different way of, I mean, you know, it was kind of a depression you had to live in and and work in. What we were doing, yeah, we were working. Yeah, we were going to baseball games when they were home. We'd get to watch them with a game in front of us. You know, so we were lucky. We were the lucky ones, right? And we realized that. But we were doing something to provide a necessary distraction, entertainment and a necessary distraction during one of our country's toughest Times, ever, when people were looking for something other than talking about COVID-19 and talking about testing and talking about this and talking about that and masks and, you know, the political stuff Absolutely. and all the other things, right? Yeah. So the base, you know, at night, you could get a break from all that on radio or television and turn on a baseball game. And yeah, there was piped in crowd noise and there were fake fans, but it was still between the foul lines, it was a baseball game and we were trying to announce it and bring it to you as normally as possible uh, during that time and, and provide that necessary distraction and try to at least get on the path to helping the country at least mentally heal one way or another.
0: Yeah, and the book does a really good job, I think, of documenting kind of your journey through it too. Like August, I wrote this down I my notes, August 14th, your fifth test, it's negative again, but you got the results later. So then you're stewing and worrying why, why haven't got, I got him yet. Is something wrong? Is there more to it this time? You know, and those are the kinds of things you guys had to live through last year, that was something that we wouldn't think about. Just like you said, just watching the ball game at night,
2: right? Because if you can't, if you get a positive test, now you're out for two weeks, and you've let your entire organization down because they need us. Right. They need us to be there, and so you know you're out for at least two weeks. And, and what do you do? It's a two-month season. You want to miss two weeks? And, and then they have to all adjust. And, it's a, and it's, a, you know, it's a trickle-down effect in a negative way. So you really had to be careful about who you were around, how you conducted your business on a daily basis. And it was good. Yeah, it hovered over you all day from the moment you woke up to the time you went to bed.
0: I want to throw one out there, see what you think of it. You know, for, for, for a few years, maybe the last three years of his career, uh, I had the um, on the MLB app. You can you can purchase for a small amount, maybe like twenty bucks, the radio broadcast of every team for the season. And I love listening yep. to baseball on the radio. You know, I'm I'm a Braves fan mostly because I grew up in Buffalo, where they were the only team I could watch every day for the first you know fifteen years of my life. Oh, uh, you know, I get to at least be a part of a season every day thanks to TBS with them. Um, but one thing I took advantage of in having the app was listening to Vince Scully falling asleep on the East Coast at night. i just put that in my headphones, put his voice in my ear, listen to his stories, and kind of fall asleep to Vin every night. And he's been retired for a few years, but I can't not talk to a Dodgers broadcaster, and someone I know who has the appreciation just for the craft and the love for for just calling baseball games. What it means to you to be a guy calling Dodgers games, just like vin did all those years it's got to mean something for anyone who loves the business who loves sports media there's some of those jobs are special like the guy who calls cardinals games the way jack buck did you know or cubs games the way harry Carey did or whatever but certainly scully and the dodgers it's connected forever and and you're calling dodgers games Is, is that something that's just to you something that means something to you what are your thoughts on Scully and your your kind of just your role in the Dodgers broadcasters history book?
2: Well, it is not lost on me, believe me. Um, you know, because before I came to the Dodgers, I I had met Vin and I I talked to Vin before I got to meet him and uh, when I, when the other teams I was with would come in and and just an absolute wonderful gentleman, but he's one of a kind and the best that to ever do this there's not and when i sit in the because i do both radio and tv so when i sit in the tv booth at dodger stadium i'm sitting in the same place that he sat and i have the same angle of the game that he had i'm sure they've changed the actual chair at some point in time but (laughs) i'm sitting in a chair sitting in a chair in the same viewpoint that he had for all those years in the same ballpark yeah and it's not lost on me, believe me, and I know. And you can't be then, right? You can't, you can't approach the game and say, "Well, what will he do?"
0: No, one of a you No, you have to be your, uh,
2: yeah. you have to be yourself and call the game the way you, you, you do, and, and involve your analysts. And I've got really good analysts, you know. I've got uh, Oral Hershiser, and I have Nomar Garcia-Para, right? So I've got some two pretty good guys, right, to draw from on TV, on radio, another great one, and Rick Monday. Uh, you know, so I'm lucky to work with those guys, but just, you know, being in the shadow of Vin Scully, it can be overwhelming at times if you let it. Um, you know, uh, to be honest with you, I'd say it was like three weeks ago, Vin actually called me out of the blue. I mean, but to have that as a, to have that happen and to have, um, uh, you know, he wanted to talk about the book actually. (laughs) That's what he wanted to talk about. But, um, but like, you know, to have, somebody like that around and to, and to understand the history of that ball club and to be even a tiny, tiny part of it to me is so gratifying professionally. It's it's it really goes beyond words, to yeah, be honest with
0: you. I'm a sports media nerd, so something like that is just amazing to me. <laughs> you'll get a, you'll appreciate this at the very beginning of the pandemic uh my wife and i were watching the tiger king or whatever it was called like so many people did at the beginning and i looked out of my phone. Oh, fo- yeah, yeah I, l- I looked out of my phone and it's ringing and scotty bowman was calling me and i said you know i can't <laughs> i can't wait you know to tell the, the absurdity of this story to my grandkids someday it's like yeah we were watching the tiger king and i had to pause it because the greatest hockey coach of all time called me to set up an interview but yeah I just thought of that I thought of that story when you, you said that Vinick called you which is amazing um
2: yeah it, it, it's a good that's a good show it was it was worth pausing for Scotty Bowman though, I
0: think <laughs> yeah it was uh the, you know one thing I thought about with your career which is something I love again maybe kind of a nerdy thing but you've worked for the Pirates the Red Sox and the Dodgers and when I think of those three three teams I think of the ballparks I mean PNC Park might be one of the most beautiful places to be in the entire country. I mean, to sit, you know, on the third baseline and to look out into the city there, it's uh, unbelievable, when that place is packed, it's unbelievable, uh, like it was for their playoff runs. Um, The Red Sox, obviously, with Fenway Park, one of the greatest, uh, most iconic stadiums, and Dodger Stadium as well, an iconic stadium. What about these stadiums you've been lucky enough to work in? It's amazing.
2: Yeah, yeah, I've been lucky, and, you know, franchises that have been around forever, too, which is good, I mean, it's... I've been, I've been fortunate in that regard. And I, I really, you know, with Pittsburgh at, at that time, I, I was really torn. I didn't want to leave. But, you know, I had, that was my option. I could have stayed there or I could have gone to Boston. Boston wanted me to come there and do radio. And, um, you know, my family's from there. My parents were not doing very well health wise. And they, they kind of needed me, I think, at that time. So uh, I was able to go be with my parents and still do Major League Baseball. But, uh, which I thought was the right thing to do, but at the same time, I really had a hard time leaving Pittsburgh. I, you know, people might say, "Well, why they they don't win all the time?" I'm like, "That's not the point." You know, it's a it's one of the old legendary franchises that I hope can come back and be competitive again. The ballpark, as you mentioned, is beautiful. Our spring training situation that we have, you know, you spend a month of your life, six weeks of your life in Florida. And we loved it there. We loved it there. We loved going down to Bradenton and the Gulf Coast. And it was a really hard thing to give up. The way the Pirates are in terms of working for them, um, you know, being a club employee, it it was just wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. One one of the best experiences I've had in in my life. And and I really didn't want to give it up, but I just felt the pull to go home and be with family that was stronger. And with the Red Sox, you don't work for the team. You work for the flagship station, which – Turned out was not a good thing, and then I I wanted to go back and work for a team. And the Dodgers offered me a job, and uh, I get to do both TV and radio and work for the team, so it's perfect.
0: And you could tell people what an amazing place PNC Park was in 2013 and 14 during those playoff games, right? I mean, people. Oh my gosh!
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, October 1st, 2013. They were hanging literally from the Roberto Clemente Bridge. Yes, I've never seen a, I've never seen that stadium like it. It was actually shaking at points. It was wonderful when they beat Cincinnati in the wild card game. Uh-huh. When Russell Martin Russell Martin hits a home run off of uh, Johnny Cueto, Cueto drops the ball. He's standing on the hill. He drops the ball. The fans are chanting Cueto, Cueto. I mean, it was the, the decibels were deafening. And he drops the ball. It rolls down the slope of the mound. Now you got forty thousand people because the fire marshal went home. The stadium only holds thirty plus. Uh but there was over forty thousand people around jammed in there, around there, and they're all laughing. And it's the loudest laugh you've ever heard in your life. Cueto picks up the ball, throws the next pitch at Martin. Martin hits it into the left field bleachers ball game.
0: Wow. And it was
2: it was just incredible. One of the most incredible atmospheres I have ever been a part of at any event, indoors or
0: out. Yeah, and one of the cool things about that stadium too is there's a lot of standing room, which you don't really think about. Yeah. And I was standing there just a couple weeks ago I went to a game there. And I was standing in the outfield standing room on the kind of the lower the lower deck, I guess. The not the upper deck, but the other the one um you know above the lower deck there. And I was just looking at it right. thinking like, Wow, I wonder what it must be like trying to stand here thirty people deep. You know what I mean? It's just an unbelievable scene there. It's too bad. the
1: rotunda,
0: too. Yeah, yeah like oh, yeah. The, the, the yep. rotunda yeah. in left field, people line up around that, too. And
2: they line, They were lined up several deep all the way up and around the rotunda as well, which was really wild to see.
0: Amazing. Yeah, you've had you've called some, you know, being a part of some big, uh, some really cool games. Do you have a Charlie Steiner story at all? Anything about being on the team with Charlie? I'm uh,
2: not, you know, not really. It's funny because, you know, Charlie does only so many games, so I, I do the balance. Right. And then I'll do, I'll do the balance on TV, which gives me a really big schedule. So we, we kind of have that. So I'm, I'm constantly working an opposite schedule of Charlie. <laughs> I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll see him occasionally. But, like, uh, you know, the thing about last year where he did the games from his house uh, right. in Brentwood in yeah. L.A., where they had him set up there. I mean, he didn't, want, he didn't even want to come to the ballpark, even though there was nobody there. So they set him up in his house. And, um, you know, it was a real technical, uh, technical wizardry, I guess, because on a lot of nights, he and Rick Monday met when Monday did the games from the stadium. So they weren't even in the same place together. They were seeing the same thing at almost the same time. But they were able to figure out some timing, yeah, and, and that yeah. worked out well. But um, you know, well, it worked out well enough. I'll say,
0: yeah. Like but, Doc, I'm you re- know, Doc, I'm recalling the Stanley Cup it, Finals from his basement, trying to pair up with yeah, a, a game it, as fast as hockey. I tip my hat to all you guys. It's amazing what you've pulled off. It's really underrated how, how well you guys have done this.
2: We don't we don't have a choice because yeah. you know you're not going to go in there and, and, and not do a good job. You have to do the absolute very best you can. You know, just like the players when they play, they have, to, they have to give it 100% all the time. Same with us. You know, we can't mail in a game, especially when it's on TV. Like, we, we're calling a game off a TV screen. I mean, you are ultra aware of, and you're looking for everything. And there are things you'd look for during a game that you can't see. So you're, you're at the mercy of a director who you don't know in a road city. And, uh, you know, we've had situations where there would be like a, uh, a check swing, appeal by a catcher. And the, the technical director is late hitting the button, so when they go down to get a reaction shot of the umpire to give the, you know, the, the swing or no swing sign, uh, you can't see it. So yep. you don't know. Yep. And, and so, like, I've had this happen to me a number of times recently where they we'll go down on a check swing. It might have been a check swing, I don't know, but I'm not going to say uh, I can't see. I'm not going to make excuses. I just don't say anything. And when I see the count change on the screen, I just give the count. So, you know, the, the worst thing that we can do is make excuses uh, and just harp on the fact that we're not there. Mentioning the fact that we're not in the building is, I think it's okay, but I don't think we have to harp on it. It is what it is. We're doing the best we can under these strange circumstances.
0: Well, the book is called COVID Curveball, an inside view of the 2020 Los Angeles Dodgers World Championship season. Of course, their first one of those since 1988 and the... Uh, the famous series against the A's. It's written by Tim Neverett, who's been nice enough to give us a lot of his time today, and I really appreciate that. And, of course, you can uh, you can find Tim uh, on Twitter if you like, uh, and to do so, you just follow him at his name, Tim, N-E-V-E-R-E-T-T. Uh, and of course, he's doing play-by-play with the Dodgers as he's done with the Pirates and the Red Sox as we've talked about today. All right, one last thing. I'll get you here out of here on this. I always think about... Uh, this Al Michaels quote from an interview in Playboy, because you know I'm one of those guys, Tim, who read Playboy for the articles. You know what I mean? And there was a. Tw- oh, I'm sure. Of yeah, it.
2: I, uh, I would have no other. I would have no other thought other than that. Yep.
0: And they did these incredible interviews, really. Sometimes, uh, and when they did one with Al Michaels, and he had a quote in there where he said, "As a broadcaster, he just always feels like he's he's chasing the perfect game. You know, a game where he never makes a mistake, like you know." He calls a pitch a ball and it was really a strike or you know, he says the guy was out of bounds, but he's in bounds. Whatever, those little things that come up and you just correct them, no big deal, through a game. But he feels like he's motivated by the chase for the perfect game. I'm sure you can relate to this. What are your thoughts about the L quote and uh, kind of how you view that quote through the eye of your own career?
2: Yeah, I think he's hundred percent right. I can't not I can't even tell you the number of times. I'd be in my car on the way out of the stadium and I'm kind of decompressing about the game and thinking, I should have said this that way, or right. I flubbed up this number, or, uh, you know, you, you, it's the one or two or three or four things that sometimes you can think about that you're, you're not perfect on, or you missed or I wish I'd have said this. Like, you know, even yesterday, um, you know, I had one that I, I said, I wish I jumped on something just five seconds earlier and you are, you're, you're, you're always looking for the perfect game. And the perfect game is not only how you perform and get all the facts and figures right. It's about the game itself. So if you can combine that with an unbelievable game that has some huge moments in it, that makes it a perfect game, in my opinion, because if you're calling up an extra innings home run or a walk-off home run or or, uh, you know, a guy striking, a guy coming in from the bullpen, punching out two or three with the bases loaded, nobody out or something, start. Uh, you know, big moments like that in the game, you want to react to those in a perfect way to relay the excitement and the importance of the moment to the listener or the viewer. And I really believe that we as broadcasters, are, and that Al Michaels is exactly right, we still chase the perfect game. And, you know, have you, have you, do you throw a perfect game sometimes? Sometimes you might. Sometimes you might throw a, a, just a no-hitter. Sometimes you might throw a, a two-hit shutout. Sometimes you might get blown out of <laughs> out of the park. But, um, you know, the game dictates, I think, a lot of what you do. But, really, we are all, every time we do it, we're chasing that perfect game. I, I totally agree with him.
0: All right, again, the book is called COVID Curveball, An Inside View of the 2020 Los Angeles Dodgers World Championship Season. And, obviously, it's available wherever you get a book, either – a physical copy or an ebook copy as well, which are available on in the ebook store on a- Apple or whatever the equivalent is on Android. Uh, thanks, Tim. Is there anything else you wanted to promote or mention before I let you go?
2: Yeah, just the only thing about the books uh, again, Amazon is there's the audio book. It's on Audible.com, but you know Amazon's kind of one-stop shopping for everything. Uh, but for people that are looking for a signed copy, because we can't, we still can't have that many book signings. Uh, We have some, but not a lot um, because the bookstores aren't having us in. But uh, if they want a signed copy, um, they just, you know, hit me up on Twitter or Instagram, uh, just under my name, as you mentioned before. And, uh, you know, we'll get one shipped to you. We just, we'll do those individually. We'll personalize them and uh, send them out to you that way.
0: Thank you so much for all the time and the, uh, the candor. I really appreciate it, Tim.
2: Oh, no problem. Just glad you're a big baseball fan and, uh, and and a fan of the broadcasters. That's always a plus.
0: Yeah, I am a sports media nerd for life. You know, when I was in college and I got the USA Today on a Monday, the first thing I read, Rudy Martzky. how do you get that media right. spin first, you know?
2: <laughs> so, so did I. I yeah. did the same thing.
0: Yeah, Rudy was the man for sure. Thanks so much for this, Tim. I appreciate you. All
2: right, thanks very much. Appreciate it.
0: I want to thank Tim Neverett and Joe Pizdansky for being on the podcast today. Don't forget, you can find this episode and all episodes of the Sportscasters on our SoundCloud page. It's soundcloud.com slash sports dash casters. You can feel free to email us, the sportscasters at gmail.com. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at sports underscore casters there. Don't forget, you can find all the episodes of this podcast, not only on our SoundCloud, but also on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Downcast, whatever pod catcher catches your pods, we should be there. And if for some reason we're not, please let me know, and I will make sure to fix that problem. Also, the Twenty Four Inch Podcast, myself and Dave Rollins, exists on the Sportscasters feed as well. Uh, you can follow that podcast at Two Four Inch Podcast on Twitter or on Instagram at. 24 underscore inch underscore podcast. Or you can ask to join our Facebook group by simply searching 24 inch podcast uh, under groups. And we will invite you to join over there. Uh, Our latest episode of the 24 inch podcast. Dave and I look back to a special night in the spectrum. October 13th, 1984 Hulk Hogan versus Big John Stud in the main event. Uh, Shout out to some of our friends. Greetings from Allentown. Uh, my favorite podcast in wrestling history featuring one human. Uh, and that human's Peter Winston. You can find him at GF Allentown Pod on Twitter. Uh, and he also does a Greetings from Allentown branded podcast called Greetings from Allentown Live uh, with his friend Keithy. Uh, that most recent episode is WWF Superstars August 17th, 1991. Uh, and they also did an episode remembering the brilliant Norm MacDonald uh, uh, looking back at the film Dirty Work uh, with not only Norm but also the great Artie Lang. Uh, who, him outliving Norm is one of the great upsets of the 24, uh, 21st century. Uh, make sure you check out my friend Adrian Dater. He's on Twitter at ADater there. ColoradoHockeyNow.com is his website. Hockey season's getting going. I think he has a special um, right now. 20-ish bucks for the whole year. And if he doesn't have a special, just tell him that I said there's a special, and I'm sure he will hook you up. Place to Be Nation, check them out. Uh, I'm going to be hosting uh, the next Place to Be Nation flagship show uh, with Justin and Scott. Um, so look for that at the uh, the end of October. I think October 19th uh, we're recording and posting on uh, Lois's birthday. And Mother Lois, October 19th. All right, one last thing for me today. And uh, I had a special week, a really special week. I was able to uh, wake up at about five in the morning, six in the morning, something like that. Uh, a week ago, Wednesday. I left the house on Wednesday, flew out to New Jersey. Uh, my brother Anthony picked me up at uh, the Newark airport. Uh, and It started about a week. I left the following Tuesday. Uh, Six days of just being together uh, and being able to spend some really good time with my brother, um, which I haven't been able to do a lot of since he started this job in New Jersey. Uh, But it was really an unbelievable trip, first of all, just to be able to kind of exist with him in his world for a week, you know, and see what he does. He coaches hockey players and lives with them at a private residence in New Jersey. He's their coach at a private rink that's on the property and then also the coach of their travel hockey team. So he's got a lot going on. It's it's really a busy job, uh, and he's a busy guy, but it was just fun being a part of the world. um, uh, Being able to meet the people he works with, like Rob Hutton uh, and, uh, and Josh, um, who I got to meet, who runs the property, uh, was really good to me. Uh, I didn't get to meet Larry, his boss, but... Just for him to open up his home to me, I like that it was really great, and I had a great time uh, just spending time with Anthony. That was one. Two was we got to go to the first Pearl Jam concert in three years. Uh, it was in Asbury Park, New Jersey, something called the See Here Now Festival. Uh, and I'm not a big festival guy. I don't like festivals are a young man's game. You know, usually if you're doing the festival the way it's meant to be consumed, you're there all day, and it's a lot of standing and listening and walking, and it's just not for me. Uh, And of course, when you go to a festival, it's not a Pearl Jam headline show in the sense that you don't get three hours and 30 songs. You kind of get two hours and 20 songs if you're lucky, Uh, and that's what we got. But you know, when... you know. Here's the thing, this was the first show in three years and they're only playing four festival shows this year. Uh, So like in 2007 when I went to La to see them, it was go see that or don't see them in 2007. And this year it was go to Asbury Park to see this festival show or go to San Diego for Ohana or don't see them at all. And um, it was an easy decision. And uh, my brother and I had a great day. We left the house in Alpine where he lives around 1 o'clock. We drove about halfway, and we ended up stopping and watching the um, Oklahoma game against Nebraska uh, at a Buffalo Wild Wings or whatever down there. Had some wings and watched the game. Had a great time there. Then we finished out the drive to Asbury Park, found somewhere to park, and we hit the boardwalk. And uh, we stopped at a restaurant there, and we sat down, had some drinks. We people-watched. Killed some time. Uh, And then finally we walked down the rest of the way down the boardwalk to the festival. Got our tickets. uh, Did our COVID check, which was honestly very, very laxed. Um, Anthony and I both have a vaccine, so we were legit. But if we weren't legit, we could have got in. I mean, it was very, very laxed. Uh, If she even blinked at my phone with my Excelsior pass, that was a lot. Um, And she didn't scan it or anything like that. So I don't know. But I wasn't worried about that anyway. I'm vaccinated. I felt safe. Anthony's vaccinated. He felt safe. So we went in. It was a long walk on the beach uh, to get to the stage. And um, honestly, we walked onto the beach for the first time about 15 minutes before Pearl Jam started. Um, So for us, this was a Pearl Jam and Pearl Jam only mission. Uh, And here's the thing that I'll say kind of to be honest and frank with everyone. Anytime it's my first Pearl Jam show since my last Pearl Jam show. I kind of reflect on what's happened in between. You know, and my last Pearl Jam show was September 4th, excuse me, September 2nd, 2018. And anyone who listens to this show uh, knows that I went through a lot in 2019 And, of course, as a country, we went through a lot in 2020. Um, So it's been a struggle to get back to another Pearl Jam concert since the last one. And as I was anticipating them taking the stage just minutes before, I was kind of reflecting on that. And then the first song... Uh, was the first single off the new album Gigaton called Dance of the Clairvoyance. And I thought back to the first time I heard Dance of the Clairvoyance when they debuted it on Pearl Jam Radio on Sirius. And I was in the hospital for one of the three surgeries I had in 289 days. And I remember getting out of my bed and dragging my IV pole and my wiring and everything that was stuck in me and my phone into the bathroom and going to the bathroom and listening to the debut of the new Pearl Jam song, Dance of the Clairvoyance. And I was thinking about that and thinking about everything I had been through. And I was standing next to my brother and I was looking up at my band. And I kind of lost it for a minute. Just for a minute. I just kind of covered my face and had some tears and just really took time to appreciate the accomplishment of just being there. Because for me, it was a a big accomplishment. Uh, And it was a good show. It was good to see them again. It was was 20 songs, like I said, so it was short for them. Uh, But there were six debuts from Gigaton, which were all great. Uh, And there was an uh, unbelievable performance of uh, Present Tense. Um, And overall, just a really great, great show and a really great trip to New Jersey. So one, spending time with Anthony. Two... Uh, spending time with Pearl Jam and three getting to meet Hollywood Dave Rollins, who I do the twenty four inch podcast with, and John Zamato, who's a friend from the Place to Be Nation world. And I got to spend a couple days with uh, Dave and one day with John. And you know, honestly, that was great. And I talk a lot about that. Dave and I do in the newest twenty four inch podcast. So I'm not going to go over it all again. You can go there and listen to it. But the main point is just this. Doing these podcasts, the 24-inch podcast, which was born out of this podcast, and being a part of the Place to Be Nation world Justin and Scott welcomed me into and have had me as a guest host on their podcast has opened me up to some new friendships and to be able to make those friendships not just something on the internet but something in real life was really special to me you know to be able to hug dave and to hug john and to feel their humanity as opposed to just consuming it over skype or messenger or whatever else text it, it, it legitimize it in some way and then met peter winson and someday I hope to meet Justin and Scott and Jenny and whoever else from the place to be world. Uh, but it, it felt really good to meet to meet John and to meet and to meet um, Dave as well. The only sad part was to not be able to meet Calvin Crowell. Uh, who this is something we talked about for over a year when I would finally come to Jersey as soon as COVID died down and Anthony's boss would allow me to be there. I would be in Jersey and he would he lived in Jersey and we would finally meet and uh, I would be able to give him a hug and he'd be able to give me a hug and you know but he passed away. He passed away a few months ago. So he wasn't there. And I felt him. I felt him I did. Uh, at the Pearl Jam concert, Ed was remembering one of his friends, Norm McDonald passing away. And I took the moment to remember one of my friends Calvin And I felt him there that night A strange spot in the sky now But that's Calvin So Overall it was a great trip to Jersey I can't wait to go back Uh, The 24 inch podcast is going to have a Table at the 80's Wrestling Con in May Uh, So at the latest I'll be back there in May and hopefully before then, too. The Saints are two and one. Let's go for three and one this week. Uh, thanks to everyone who listens to the podcast. I appreciate you so much.